production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's Board of Directors. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce today's forum on the future of parks and public spaces, featuring Mitchell Silver, commissioner for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. When New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio named Mitchell Silver as the city's parks commissioner in 2014, he called him a visionary. He went on to describe our speaker in this way. He has a passion for fairness and equality, and he brings it to the work of government and understands that we have to ensure that parks and open spaces are available in every community and are well-maintained in every community in this city. One of the nation's most celebrated urban thinkers, Commissioner Silver oversees planning, management, and operations of New York City's nearly 30,000 acres of parkland. Yes, 30,000 acres of parkland, which includes parks, playgrounds, beaches, marinas, recreation centers, wilderness areas, and other assets. Prior to returning to his native New York City, Commissioner Silver served as the Chief Planning and Development Officer and Planning Director for Raleigh, North Carolina, and as President of the American Planning Association, the first African American to hold the title. His career has also included roles as a Policy and Planning Director for New York City's Department of Planning, a principal of a New York City-based planning firm, a town manager in New Jersey, and Deputy Planning Director in Washington, D.C. Commissioner Silver holds a bachelor's degree in architecture from Pratt Institute and a master's degree in urban planning from Hunter College. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming to the stage Commissioner Mitchell Silver. Thank you, Robin. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. My first time in Cleveland, and the weather is similar to New York, so I feel right at home. <laughs> Quick story before I begin. Uh, my background, as you heard, uh, I've been a planner for over 30 years. And when Mayor called me to be the Parks Commissioner, I was a little bit confused because, uh, you know, I've been a planner by training. But after talking to the Mayor about equity, I decided it was time to come back. But all my friends, all my planners across the country said, Parks Commissioner, you are such a sellout. How can you do this to us? <laughs> and I said, I'm still a planner, but they kept teasing me throughout the whole year. And then when I spoke at the first conference, Parks Commissioner Annual Plan Conference, I finally realized the difference. I said, you know something? When I open up a park, people literally come up and hug me. No one ever hugged me for completing a master plan when I was a planner. <laughs> 
And in fact, uh, we're not just a department of Parks and Rec in New York City. We want to be known as a department of fun, health, and happiness. And I ask you, Cleveland, who is your department of fun in this city? That's why people want to... <laughs> we have it, Metro Parks. People want fun, healthy, and happy, and now we're asking our entire staff to rethink their role because that is such an important part of our city, not just to have livable parks and communities, but to have lovable parks and communities. So I'm gonna go through a quick overview to talk about the future. I wanna talk about where we've been in terms of a park system uh, across this, really this world. Uh, first, this is what was mentioned by Robin. We have a very large park system. I know I'm in Cleveland. We have a lot of money and a lot of staff. And I want to make sure I do bring some relevant examples, although it's a big agency, our budget's half a billion, 7,000 employees, which is still not enough for a large city of 8.6 million, but we have a lot of assets that we take care of, and so I want to make sure that we were fair across the board to all communities. 30,000 acres of parkland, 1,900 parks, really 1,958, and we have uh, quite, quite a bit of street trees as well as park trees that we take care of. But if you go back really to the mid uh, 19th century, going back to Europe, we didn't have a lot of parks in the United States. And there in Europe, it was parks and gardens. You're looking at a photograph of in Oxford, and these were places where you can observe the landscape, not sit, stroll, walk through to look at the natural beauty. It wasn't until really the mid or late 19th century, early 20th century, where the landscape profession emerged, as you heard from David in, in, in uh, basically in 1899, where we started to see this profession that actually started to shape landscapes for the first time because cities were urbanizing. And this landscape architecture profession emerged, looking at Bethesda Terrace in Central Park, to be democratic spaces, regardless of your income, you can go out there and enjoy a public space. Then we had, for the first time, this term recreation entered parks and recreation. And during the public works era, and Robert Moses started to build recreation for people. In New York, people were jumping into the East River to cool off and they were dying and drowning. And children were playing in the streets and getting hit by horse carriages and Robert Moses decided to build these big public works of pools and playgrounds. But that period is really from the 1930s to 1965. The next era was really the environmental movement. Like Cleveland, New York had all this industrial property and they started going out of business across this country, and a lot of them were located in very prime real estate locations, waterfronts, riverfronts. And this incredible movement where finally we took this contaminated land that had the best views, cleaned it up, and gave it back to the public. The evolution you see in New York City happened by giving the best public land to the public and we gave the other land to developers because we felt it was a public good they should all enjoy. Here's an example of Riverside South. This was an area people did not have access to, and as a child, you know, I couldn't go to this location and enjoy the river, and now things have changed. What about this abandoned railroad on the west side of Manhattan that people wanted to tear down? It's now known as the High Line, and by converting this, mile and a half Lanier Park has transformed the idea of what it is to be uh, on this elevated park and look at the city in three dimensions has transformed our city. Industrial property that was transformed and giving it back to the public. <coughs> Brooklyn Bridge, another shipyard. Here's a location where it was converted to give this best land to the public. So this environmental movement has done great 
for cities throughout the country, and I'm sure it can do the same here in Cleveland. And I can't imagine now in Brooklyn Bridge Park, this was unheard of before, that you can now kayak in the East River with some of the coolest views anywhere on the planet. But the big question is, those were all those past eras. Where are we today? Well, some of the challenges in the 21st century that we need to be aware of is that parks are not just green spaces. These are spaces for people. Yes, we want the ecology to take place in these parks, but it's also about people. Number two, parks in the 21st century, it's not just for physical well-being, it's also for mental well-being. There's study after study that will show you the benefit of being in and around green space from a child to an adult, how it reduces anxiety, reduces stress. There was just a study in Philadelphia by converting their vacant lots, reduced crime, stress, anxiety, because people have this connection with nature. Parks are also serving multiple purposes. They're just not this nice amenity that usually gets shortchanged in the city's budget, but they're vital to the infrastructure. In New York, they're now part of our in in green infrastructure system, combating climate change with clean air and clean water and urban canopy. And now, uh, in terms of green infrastructure, we're now capturing a stormwater that will not affect our systems. And so it's changing its role in the 21st century. It's not just a park, they're park plus, they're public spaces for people. So when I say what's next in the 21st century, first, it is equity. I'll talk quite a bit about equity. Number two is about planning and placemaking. As a planner, I wanted to bring planning back into park planning. I will not have time to talk about resiliency and sustainability or innovation and technology, but we're trying to be a lot smarter as a park system about how we manage and care for our park system. Let's start first with equity. When I came on board, the mayor told me that we had to address equity. There was a senator that said, okay, I know how to deal with equity. Let's take money from the richest conservancies and give it to the underserved parks. And I said, mayor, that's not gonna work. He said, okay, you have six months to come up with a solution. And we did. We decided to come up with this framework for an equitable future. Because we know in New York, because New York is so dense. For many people, it's our front yard, it's our backyard. These are the outdoor living rooms where people go to connect and create memories. And so we knew that every community needed to have that in their city. To put things in context, New York spent a lot of money over the past 20 years to really change their city and, and the park system. Close to $6 billion over 20 years. We acquired over 1,100 acres, and we, from TPL, Trust Public Land, developed this walk score that every New Yorker should be within a 10-minute walk to a park. We're at 81.5%. San Francisco's the only city that is at 100%, and I'm told by Chanel that Cleveland's at the 80, 81% as well, so good job. But when I came on board, the walk score was important, and it wasn't just about proximity, it was about quality, because I would walk to some of those parks, and I would not let my child or grandchild step foot in that public space. Why should be included on the walk score when it's a place I can't interact with? And I'll show you a couple of those in a second. And so that became a big issue. We decided we had to look at quality, but we also had to look at equity. And rather than giving a long explanation, equity means one word, fairness. Are you fair about how you distribute your tax dollars? Because everyone pays property tax. Is it being distributed equitably? Are you caring for your parks the same way throughout the city? And so we had to take a look and we used a data-driven exercise to find out were we being equitable about how we care for our parks in New York City. And so we decided to use a metric, six billion over 20 years, 
how much of that went to our park system and how many parks received less than a quarter of a million dollars over 20 years. We did that exercise, it turned out there were 215 parks within our city hiding in plain sight. 20 years, that's a child going from pre-K to college and that park never changed. That was not fair and we knew something had to give. The mayor, to his credit, we tried all different approaches, decided uh, that I'm going to invest, the city is going to invest over $300 million to transform 67 of those 215 parks. Not just a light touch, scrape it down to dirt, rebuild it with green infrastructure, and make it now a 21st century park. That was huge. That was huge. But we went ahead and did it because we felt that every community deserved a park, and we went ahead and started to make that change. So here is one of those incredible, nice parks you can walk to. For those that can't be able to see the screen, is an asphalt playground with some painted stripes that faded away. This counted on the walk score. And my question is, is that a park or is that a parking lot? We looked for one blade of grass in that park, couldn't find one. Now, this was a little bit better because it has a bench and two trees. <laughs> So you can propose, have a picnic, enjoy a nice afternoon. This is what people had to endure as their neighborhood park. It was not fair when you saw the other parks throughout our system. And then, oh my goodness, we love signs. I don't know if you have this in Cleveland. No adults except in the company of a child could enter that park. I had this great idea. What I was going to do was get a concession where you could rent a child on a sidewalk so you can go into the park. It wasn't fair because if you were a senior and you wanted to go into this park just to set on a tree to use a comfort station, you couldn't. You had to walk another 10 blocks. And we were actually given summonses to seniors for these parks. It was not fair. So we re-signed, we just finished this year, every single park to put the sign where it belonged, next to the play equipment and not at the perimeter of the park, which prevented adults from going in. So if you were a 12-year-old, great walk score. If you were 15, horrible walk score. We had to fix it because it was not fair. So what we decided to do is come up with a new design precedent for 21st century parks. A lot more spray showers, a lot more interactive, make them beautiful and attractive, adult play equipment, adult fitness equipment. The biggest thing that's going on, dog runs and adult fitness equipment are the hottest items people want to see in their parks. Young people may not have a partner, but they do have a dog or two. So that's what we're seeing the trend in New York. We wanted to use vibrant colors since these are town centers. One of them with the handball court is partnering with the Trust for Public Land to make sure they're vibrant, getting away from the gray, drab asphalt that we see so often in many of New York City parks. Vegetation, stormwater capture, green, gardens. People want to see that in their parks. In fact, it was one of the number one things in all of our community meetings. Please, break up the asphalt, give us green, green, green. And we delivered. And then because we have an aging population, we want to make sure our parks were multi-generational with lots of seating. Seniors like to sit at the edge of parks and sit in general. Places for families where someone wants to sit down and feed a child. So we want to make sure our parks were multi-generational with lots and lots of seating. So I'm going to share with you uh, some examples of what it looked like in terms of transforming some of these places through this program called Community Parks Initiative. This park is in the South Bronx. Uh, and it's right near a community college. There's a wonderful entrance, exciting. I'm sure all of you can't wait to visit the South Bronx to go into this park. But this one has vegetation. 
Uh, there it is. This is called a weed garden. Full of weeds, cracking through the asphalt, and this too was included in the walk score of a place you can go to to take your family. I think not. So we thought long and hard, want to make it multi-generational, college nearby, kids nearby, a school nearby. We made sure that rather than having a narrow entrance to get in, it is now ADA accessible for people to get inside. And now when it's said and done, this is under construction, it's now going to look like this with a large lawn, seating wall, spray showers, lots of seating, a new park for the community. Here's another example where a lot of drug activity was taking place. We close it off. People didn't even go in this park, and you can see there's no children there right now. We worked to make this a destination, and now it went from, this is where a lot of the little alcohol nip bottles they would throw. We had to clean them up every morning, and we decided to take this one head on, and now the park is full of color, play features, water features. In fact, the grandmas, when we opened it up, kept saying, muchas gracias, thank you, because we couldn't go anywhere for vacation. This is where we take our children for vacation. And I love this image because there's a little girl, hot July. You could just see how refreshed she is. <laughs> this is what it's all about, changing the lives of individuals. In fact, there was one example uh, of one of our parks where uh, there was a senior center nearby. We decided to do a seating area for seniors because a nursing home didn't have one. And I told my staff, design uh, a, a garden area where people can sit. And this woman opening day held my hand and said, thank you for doing this because I'm now going to live longer because of you. I sit here with my granddaughter in his garden and watch my grandchildren play basketball. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll get to it in a second. Oh, I skipped a couple. Let me get to that and I'll come back. And there it is. That's where she sits, where she can play basketball. With, I'll skip the other ones because of time. This is a woman. We transformed what was a dead park with now walking trails. She just lost five pounds. She said, the commissioner's here. She held my hand, take my picture. I want to show my doctor I lost five pounds. <laughs> I'm going to go back for a second because this one is a, somewhat of a sad story. Uh, we have a lot of immigrant populations coming in. This was a football field in one of our parks. The community didn't like the fact that it went from football to soccer, and they asked the old parks department to plant trees in the football field to prevent people from playing soccer. Good news is we cut the trees down, and now that is now being transformed to a full-length soccer field to recognize that we do have changing demographics in our community. The last one I'm going to show you of an example was a little boy in Brooklyn. We transformed this incredible public space. And he looked. It's a, it's a track and a synthetic turf. And he stood outside. He wouldn't come in. And he asked one of my staff workers, how much does it cost to go into that new park? Because he was used to this asphalt playground. And that's the park. There it is. And if you see a little boy, he's running right there. That's him, eight years old. His life has changed. Everyone at neighborhood's life is changed. And then even in Detroit, I'm so amazed, Campus Marsh, they actually put basketball in their downtown park. Most people, that's a signal. Basketball, no. Bocce, yes. Basketball, no. <laughs> but the city's on its way back, and it says, you matter. You count. We're going to put it in the center of our downtown. We want you to share in our prosperity. What a powerful message about equity that I've ever seen in all my travel. That took guts. And it stayed with me because that is not normal. Most people do not want basketball in their parks. Detroit said, center city. That's where we want to put it. I'm going to shift gears quickly to planning and placemaking, something we've done to our city. Uh, we're changing now. We want to focus on experience of place, memory of place, authenticity. We don't just want to create a park, a public space. We want to make a place. It's a difference. We want to make a place. 
We look very carefully at the generations. We plan and make sure that we're addressing the concerns of each generation. There's six of them that are living, and everyone in this room is on this list. If you're not, you're dead, so I know that you're alive and paying attention. But the reason why we put this up is that there's different values, needs, and aspirations for each generation. And when we hold public meetings, we want to make sure we're listening to all the generations. And there are some differences. Older generations, I'm part of it, tend to say no, no, no to change. Younger generations saying yes, 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 let's try it. And so we have to balance that out. We have public meetings. We don't plan for who's in the room. We plan for who lives in the community. So we do additional outreach. And we, in some cases, go to them if they're not present. In New York City, about 60% of our population is 53 and under, yet people who come to our public meetings tend to be those that are over, and so we make sure we do the proper outreach to balance it out. Why? Because previous generations, primarily consumers of goods, the younger generations are consumers of experiences. They go to places for the experience. That's why they go back again and again, the experience. So I tell my staff, we're not planners and designers, we're going to be experienced builders. When I design that park, what is the experience? What is the view? Why put the bench here? How are people going to communicate and relate? They're going there because of an experience. Quick point, I'm watching the time. We had a part of a park, people were coming in. It wasn't allowed to have barbecuing and picnicking, but that's where they were in that section of the park. They called me up, Commissioner, these people are having barbecues in a section of the park where it's not permitted. I said, really? I went to the bar commissioner, we changed the rules. We, rather than prohibiting it, I then changed the sign and said, yes, it's permitted right here. <laughs> they love the experience. And we put the proper receptacles so they can dump their coals, rather than having to walk halfway across the park because that's where it was permitted. They didn't live there. The experience, eating, is something that people enjoy, almost all cultures. Because I believe that people may eat and sleep in their homes and apartments, but they live in the public realm. Here are some examples. Here is uh, New York City, we get 130 million visits to our parks every year. That's more than the entire state of Florida. Our parks! For us, it's a major tourism attraction. And here are people sitting on the High Line watching cars go by. Who does that? That generation. <laughs> it's the experience. You've been to High Line, it's, it's just looking at cars go by, but it's popular, selfies. And then I was in Philadelphia, and there's a love. There was a long, I had to wait 10 minutes to get my picture taken. I felt so bad. My wife wasn't there, so I tried to Photoshop her in, but <laughs> that's the line, just to take a picture and a selfie with the love sculpture. Look at this. Underperforming concrete. Right in the middle of the Flatiron District, you had this concrete traffic island. You give me concrete, I'll give you Cleveland, I've been walking around. Y'all got a lot of concrete. <laughs> You have instant parks all over your downtown. <laughs> Flowers, tables, garbage cans. You got a park, public space. And look how crowded it is. It's more crowded than Madison Square Park across the street. The experience that people are looking for. So we looked at our public realm and found out parks is 14%, but streets and sidewalks, another 60%, uh, 26%. 40% of New York is in the public realm, yet, the average citizen is walk, don't know if they're walking on parks property or Department of Transportation or Public Works, and guess what? They don't care. But the agencies do. This is my territory. And so we figured out a way of having a seamless public realm. It's all connected. The public doesn't know there's a little line is saying, oh, that's Public Works, that's parks. That's us. 
And so we decided to change that because we own it. It belongs to you, the public. Yet it's just divided up the wrong way. This is for cars. This is for this. Stop. It's public. Olmsted once said that this, the sidewalk adjacent to the park is considered the outer park. Not the sidewalk, the outer park. We need to change the name of sidewalk to sidewalk to main walk because I, there's this whole opportunity about changing the sidewalks. Also, uh, when I took the job, I always look at the city charter and it said parks is to manage and care for all parks, squares, public spaces, and the sidewalks immediately adjoin the same. Yes! So I told my staff, from now on, we do a park design, we include the sidewalk. It's the outer park. And if you look at our great parks in New York City, Central Park, look at Fifth Avenue, looks like a park. Benches, trees, alley of trees. Again and again. So we started rethinking the edge of our parks. You see a sidewalk, I see a park. And look at that fence. That poor dog is dying to sniff some grass. He can't get through that fence. We're fence happy in New York, so we're going to do uh, low impact development, and that's now going to be green, and we're going to re-envision that's a park, not a sidewalk, that's a park. Here's another example. I have a feeling staff thought the trees were going to run away at night, so they put a fence. We monitored the trees did not run away. And then people say, fences keep us safe. Don't take them down, really. If I told you a person's being mugged right now, halfway down that block, can you see it? They don't keep us safe. We have to improve the sight line, take them down. People have a better connection with nature. And then I remember one of our pools where kids go to have their summer lunch and one of our public pools, they go there, it looks great, but it doesn't look like this. It looks like this. We are putting these high fences and bars to imprison our children for some reason thinking that we're going to keep them safe. Luckily, when I came commissioner, we have this new initiative called, called Cool Pools. We took the fences down, changed the colors, and now we've transformed these public spaces to be more humane and respectful for the community because when we respect the public, they'll respect us back in return. So that gave birth to this whole idea about parks without borders. I'm going to run through this very quickly. The goal of this one, the mayor gave me $50 million to try this new pilot program to deal with the edges and entrances of parks. And so that is now underway. We've already changed a number of parks throughout the city. The goal of Parks Without Borders is to address the edges, the entrances, and the adjacent park spaces that are public and we own. Don't have to acquire any land. We're just bad land managers. We had to do a better job at managing those public spaces. The entrances want to take down fences or lower them so people have easier access to parks and better connections to the parks. The edges, who want to lower the fence so it improves the sight line you can now see in the park. What a big difference when you're actually walking by and your eyes can see the beautiful green and landscaping. Plus, we now put more furniture on the sidewalk because parks close, but the outer park sidewalk never closes. And so that's something we're doing more and more. And then we're reclaiming these adjacent park spaces that are unused, they're like dioramas of green spaces, and we're making them now available to the public. We had a public meeting because it was a competition. You nominate your park to see where we do this park without borders. We had it both online and in person for those that didn't have internet access. We thought we would get 1,000 nominations. We got 6,000, but we'd only pick eight. <laughs> People said, we love this idea. Come to my park and change it. So I'll talk about two parks, Seward Park and Prospect Park. Uh, where we're applying this new parcel borders treatment. What I like about Seward Park is the first playground in the United States, and it's in the Lower East Side. 
the thing about this park is it has this beautiful library in this garden. The problem is that garden is surrounded by fences, so you can peek and look and like, oh, look at the flowers, it's so nice. You can't go in it. Now it's changed because they heard me give this presentation and now the community group unlocks the park so people can go in. Then there's a library in, that, in the background. But when you go to the library, that's the access from the street. It's locked. For what reason? I don't know. People have to now walk all the way around the block to go in the park just to get to the library when you have more direct access. Surrounded by high fences, so we say, you know something, we've got to lower it. I want people to engage in that beautiful garden that's there. And then this is showing a kind of the site plan of the, of the park itself, how we're going to change it. Uh, but let me go quickly. So I'm now standing on the steps of the library looking out. To this side, you see a locked fence. The beautiful garden is surrounded by fencing, nowhere to sit. It's a library. So we decided to go from this to this. We took down the fence. We added seating. We made it a plaza. We dropped down the fence so people now can engage on the green lawn. Again, we own the land. We just unleashed its potential. And now this one is under construction. And I have to tell you, the community is going crazy. They can't wait for it to open. Uh, Prospect Park, uh, there's this long perimeter, three quarters of a mile of a fence. You cannot get in this side of the park. You cannot get in. People know Prospect Park. I used to run around this park. Why is this fence here? Oh, it's there to protect. People don't want to get through this. They're afraid, really. They're already saying, I want in. <laughs> they thought about parcel borders before I ever did. For three and a quarter of a mile, you cannot get into this part of the park, and it happens to be the less affluent side of the park. So we decided, here it is, to put the first entrance in Prospect Park on this side in a generation. And it's now going to break ground very soon. I uh, wanted you to get a better look. And this is an Umstead Park, so we wanted to do it in very high quality. And now this is a new entrance that and now walks you right to the Rose Garden in Long Meadow, uh, that you don't now have to walk 20 minutes to access the park. Now you get quick access, which gives better access to people to green space. There's another angle, so you can see it. And so in closing, just hope I inspired you because you have so much potential here in Cleveland. To take advantage of your underperforming concrete and asphalt, to connect people to neighborhood parks, to figure out how through equity to make sure everyone has access to quality space. It can in fact reduce crime, reduce anxiety, make people healthier. And I believe if you do this, you will affirm yourselves as the city and department of fun, health, and happiness. So our goal is to create more equitable park system with a seamless public realm for present and future generations. I know Cleveland, you can do it. Thank you all very much. Today we are listening to a forum with Mitchell Silver, Commissioner for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the questions. Holding the microphones today are Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong and Content Coordinator Bliss Davis. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon. How do we convince our leaders 
who have laser focus on development that the best land should go to the public? Well, I think you have to show the evidence of where it has worked, whether it's the Urban Land Institute, whether it's successful cities. Uh, it increases the value of property. And in fact, uh, there's a dot-com real estate company in New York, and now they're saying the number one amenity they're looking for when they're looking for an apartment is a park. Open space and density go together. Livable neighborhoods require open space. When I hear affordable housing plans, great, because I don't just sit in a unit and enjoy myself. I need to have amenities, and so parks is what it is. And project after project, if you build the best land for the public, it increases the value of the real estate because now they have access walking, running, biking, falling in love. It now is right at your doorstep versus doing public space as an afterthought. It never works. So it creates more value, and in fact, developers actually prefer it along all of our waterfront. Excuse me, the first piece goes for public. It's a public good. They have a right to access to nature and, and water or nature, and then you put the development in back. So it's something where you have to show examples where this is happening all over the country, and you're actually undercutting the value of your property by giving the best land to the public, which means the public land will be, quote, unquote, leftover space. Can you tell me about any interaction you've had with foreign-born visitors who have said, this really makes me feel better about the United States, seeing what you've done right. with your parks? New York has uh, a very diverse population. And so we make sure we do our outreach. Number one, all of our signs uh, are in multiple languages outside of our parks. So we can explain people uh, the park rules. All of our public meetings have interpreters. So we make sure we hear from the diverse population. And then we stay in tune with what are some of the uses that now people are attuned to. We're seeing a transition from baseball field to soccer fields. We're doing that. We're now seeing an emergence of South American volleyball. We'll make adjustments. You know, netball, which is more Australian and, and Caribbean, cricket, it's now emerging in many of our parks. So we're transitioning a lot of our fields to make sure that they adapt and address some of the concerns of the various populations. And as I mentioned, food is a lot uh, part of people using public space. And so I now will allow uh, other spaces to take advantage of expanding picnic areas or where people can barbecue and allow more permitting for some special events. So we're very much in tune. We want people know that we welcome our immigrant population. And in fact, we'll make adjustments to how they use our park space to meet their local needs. Yes, I'm sorry. Hi, Commissioner Silver. I really appreciate hearing your forward thinking on placemaking through city parks. And my question is, with um, our city and private investors uh, focusing on, on affordable, house, affordable housing, how do we make parks a part of that plan? I think you have to make that part of the ask when you do an affordable housing project. We do that right now. Anytime we do a major rezoning and we're up zoning it for more density, the Parks Department is a partner at the table and either we look to what public spaces can be improved or what public spaces can be in increased or acquired. That's just part of the formula because we know you're not just buying an affordable unit. You're buying a neighborhood. 
and with that comes the amenities. And so we make sure as part of that package, either the city, we have something called a neighborhood improvement fund, that if we know there's gonna be an additional development, we make sure those assets are put in place because we know there's gonna be more demand and we know people, particularly in New York, are looking for public space. You saw our numbers. People come out to our public spaces, even in the wintertime. So for us, it's something we put right up front to anyone who wants to do business with the city, that you've got to help us invest in some of the public spaces. Developers get it. It's just that people don't ask. They know it increases value. It's just that, okay, we're not going to push that on you because we want affordable housing. People need those public spaces. They don't just live in their apartment, as I said. They need public space. They need amenities, shopping, you know, recreation. All that is part of a quality neighborhood, not just an affordable unit. And too often, we have people bean counting. How many units? How many units? Stop. They're looking for an affordable, quality neighborhood, not just an affordable housing. That's important, but it comes with another package. Good questions, by the way. Thank you so much for being here. Can you speak to the role of conservancies and nonprofit organizations in bringing community voice and helping your parks be successful? Yeah. We love working with our outside partners. We have three levels. We have conservancies like Central Park. That's pretty big. They raise about $50 million a year just to take care of Central Park. Uh, so we have the conservancies, which is a public-private partnership to help care for our parks. The next level, we have alliances, which is a hybrid where they raise some money for staff at parks. We then have parks department work in those particular parks like Prospect Park. And then we have friends groups, which are neighborhood groups that just raise money, activate, care for, and help us with our parks. We have about 600 citywide. But reaching out to our public-private partners, we do concessions, we do special events. We have, whether it's American Express, REI, they come in for service days. They actually give us money, Blue Cross Blue Shield, to do our outdoor Shape Up NYC, which is free outdoor fitness classes. So there is a full partnership in New York of a lot of private investment because they know the value of having a healthy city, having happy workers, and having access to quality open space. So we have a whole team, a marketing team, that reaches out for a variety of ways, whether it's for programming, whether it's for capital, whether it's for special events, but they're all on board because New York uh, values its public space. So it's something that is critically important. I don't know what's happening here uh, in Cleveland, but they get it. You always want to have those champions who speak out for public space, typically from the private sector. I'm from the public sector. I worked, I was a consultant. The minute I joined the public sector, my IQ dropped for some reason by like 50 <laughs> points. Same person, private to public, all of us, oh, public, oh, yeah. <laughs> There are great partners out there. You just have to knock on the door, ask them, and have the right pitch, and they will support you. Believe me, we raise tons of money from the private sector, and even in development. When we do our projects, Brooklyn Bridge Park, half of it was for development. We sold long-term lease land, and that was used to create the park and maintain it over the next 50 years. Great partnership. I advocate for it. Something if you're not doing, you should definitely do. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And in, in talking about partners, the public is probably one of the best partners. And yes. so how are you engaging diverse populations and, and diverse partners in not only the redesign of the public parks, but also experiences and programs right. in those parks after they're designed? Well, as I mentioned, we have about 600 friends groups in all neighborhoods. There are park stewards, but they also help us with programming. There's a lot of community-led programming that we support them. Uh, we also offer grants if they want to put on programming themselves. And so it's a variety of ways, whether it's community held, whether there's to support them. 
Uh, and so that's something we have a whole team called Partnership for Parks, and we have outreach coordinators in every part of the city, and we work with all these local groups, whether it's a cultural festival, whether it's a park cleanup, uh, whatever it is, we work very hard to make sure that communities connect with their local park. And so across the board, we have a lot of partners throughout the city. I always say that parks who have friends groups do far better than those that don't. And I was sharing last night at a meeting, you know, some of them are such stewards. This woman in Queens picks up all the litter in her park, and she walks around. Even if these guys look like thugs, excuse me, you better stop where you are and pick that up. Put it in the garden. I mean, it's, it's just something to love. Because there are some departments that are park maintenance. People don't want to just maintain a park. They want to care for a park. It's a difference. Maintenance is check, 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 next site. Caring, it's nurturing, comes from the different part of the soul. And these community groups who volunteer, it's coming from here. It's not a checklist. And so I always say that I have a 20-year-old daughter. She can turn 21. I didn't maintain her as she grew up. <laughs> I cared for her and nurtured her. And it's the same with our public spaces. People could tell when you maintain it and when you care. I've gone to Disney, and the way they tell, these people, this is like perfect. And I don't want to walk into a, a public space and say, nobody cares. Look at that. Nobody cares. And so that's, maintenance and caring are two different things. Okay, next question. I'm sorry, I love this stuff, by the way. I don't know if y'all know this. <laughs> just love public space. Thank you for uh, sharing that because uh, caring, I, I, I care for our parks a lot. I was wondering if you have partnered with any um, cemeteries. I think there's a, there, there are beautiful opportunities in cemeteries, and those are ones that are always gated a lot. And uh, I, I know I enjoy my time in cemeteries. Quick answer, no. <laughs> we have too much that we handle right now. The topic does come up. There are some small cemeteries uh, that we inherited. Uh, but it's something that we try to shy away from for the time being because we have so many needs in our system. But I agree there are some beautiful cemeteries. Years ago, they were viewed as public spaces and parks, but it's something we haven't taken on because I don't know if you've seen New York City. Our, some of our cemeteries are like 300 acres, and that's a little bit too much for us to handle. But good idea, but maybe the next commissioner. I'm going to pass on it while I'm there. <laughs> Commissioner. Yes, um, hi. hi, I'm here in the back. Um, thank you so much for being here. And I know that you've had sort of a whirlwind tour of people showing you Cleveland over the last uh, day and a half. And I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, from your outside perspective any fantastic opportunities that this community has and that we should be rallying around as a community. <sighs> Is that Tiffany? Hi. Okay. I'm saying this in love. I know. We have Darnell here, too. I'm saying this in love. When I went on a website and saw Metro Parks, Cleveland uh, Metro Parks, and then I saw Department of Park Maintenance, Buried in Public Works, I said, maybe it's time to think about a reset. Uh, <laughs> say this. And I think it may be worthwhile to work with the mayor to have a town hall about what is the approach towards some of the neighborhood parks. There's not one city I know does not take seriously the public services they offer, and I'm sure this city is no different, but it may be a time to think about it. What does the public desire to some of the metro, some of the city's neighborhood parks that aren't covered by metro parks? I don't know what the answer is. 
but I think it's something worthwhile because I do know in our city there's such a demand for these local neighborhood parks that could unleash so much potential in the city. So I think from my view, that is one opportunity in the neighborhoods is to see what potential lies. And, you know, like I said, have you ever asked groups to emerge and look at some of the models that exist, activating them with concessions or at least certain activities and partner with others to bring uh, festivals and other activities to spaces that have been neglected? Reaching out to some of the civic leaders or corporate leaders to see if they're willing to invest in something like a community parks initiative that we had. You just have to ask the question, I don't know, but I think it may be worthwhile having a town hall going throughout the city, what do you expect about your public space? Because let's face it, Metro Parks, they do get some funding from the Parks District. The city has a lot of needs, but you have to be innovative to figure out how can we do this inexpensively? How can we activate some of these neighborhood parks that doesn't break the city's budget? So that is a question I think that should be asked. The other one I already mentioned is you do have a lot of asphalt, a lot of big, wide, streets. There's a lot of concrete and asphalt, and it does offer a lot of potential about what can be done to activate sidewalks and streets and, and, and do special, you know, events. I was talking to David how they just took the top of a parking deck and transformed it into a very exciting opportunity. More of that. People want to have a city of fun. You know, they come here, they come back, and I go, oh my goodness, I had so much fun in Cleveland. Cleveland? Yeah, Cleveland! I had so much fun. Oh, I gotta go. I gotta go. It's the city of fun. You gotta go check it out. So you got all this stuff there. The question is, you know, do you have the energy, political will, the support to make it, to keep it going? Uh, Commissioner, I have a two-pronged question. Um, our Great Lakes Brewing Company have done urban farming, and mm -hmm. we are so happy to, with the results. We want to do more of that. Um, do you allow for urban farming in Manhattan? And then two, um, what statistics do you have on crime rate as it's been affected by the retrofitting of your parks? The crime in our parks is now the lowest it's been. It's less than 1% of all crimes are happening in our parks. The number one crime is what we call apple picking. That's when they take your phone when you're a tourist. You're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my phone. <laughs> you don't have apple picking? Because the grand larceny. Less than 1% of all crime is occurring in our parks. Why? We activate them. Good uses push out bad uses. We don't do anti-planning. We don't want this, we don't want that. We don't want basketball, we don't want homeless, we don't want this, we don't want this. And you go there like, ooh, I don't want to be here. And so we plan for what we want to see, not what we don't want to see. And so we're seeing a lot of crime dropping across the board. Less than 1% of all crime occurs in our parks. And we take numbers quarterly, but I have to say, taking of a phone, breaking into a locker direct center seems to lead the pack of the crime. So we're just telling our tourists, do not leave your bags and your phone on the blanket. It could be picked. So uh, in terms of urban farming, we allow it. We have uh, Green Thumb Gardens. Uh, we have 600. We discourage urban farming inside of our parks because we have so much land that we can direct that farming to go to rather than being within our park itself. There are a few that have it, but I prefer that that happen in the community gardens and not within the park uh, itself. So we do have, and we encourage urban farming. We oversee Parks Department, the Green Thumb Program, which oversees about 600 community gardens. Yes? Uh, thank you very much. Um, when we go to New York with our family, it's, we head for the High Line. 
So it's a highlight. And you've given us a lot of ideas about innovation and innovative things you've done. I'm curious about the section of innovation and technology mm -hmm. that you said you wouldn't be able to get to in this talk. Could you direct us to information about that section somewhere I'll else? I'll see if where it is on our website, but believe it or not, everything we used to do was on paper and spreadsheets. And I'm like, come on. This is New York, get with the 21st century. So we now have a whole team that builds in handheld apps that when they do go into a park, we're able to check off what was done so we could examine. Each park has a service level. And so in the past, it was taking us long to figure it out. So now we've optimized our routes to figure out how we could actually clean our parks. So you know, there's stationary crews, people stay in a park and clean it like Central Park. They don't move, they, that's their park they stay in. Then there's mobile crews to go from park to park to park to park. In New York, about 80% of our parks are cleaned by mobile crews. So we optimize the routes, we optimize the amount of staff that work on these crews, and then we had this incredible tool where depending on where you work, we want to optimi optimize the length of travel from your home to the district you're assigned to. And by doing this one, we found out people working in Brooklyn, it was better to work in a park in Queens because it was easy to get to by public transportation. So reduced travel time, which increases the happiness of people if you don't spend all the time commuting. So we started being a lot smarter and using software technology to do more analytics. And that helped us, that's the innovation side. And so I try to push us to the 21st century. So now we have a whole team that focuses just on how do we be smarter, better, and faster because it's not always throw more staff. It's like, no, I want to see how we can do better with the tax dollars I have to be more smarter and efficient versus just adding more staff to the problem. So that's some of the examples we've used moving toward more innovation. And we had this old handheld nobody can use. Now it's on a smartphone. They go to the site, click it in. A work order gets pushed right out. If it's an IA, immediate action. Staff comes out the next day, fixes it if there's a problem at the playground. So everything now happens faster versus the old method. Type it on a piece of paper, give it to a data entry person, they load it up, goes over to this person, they look at it, they go over it. Now it's just instant. And we cut days and days of delay. Of, and then, of course, we have our tree census. Uh, we now have every tree in New York City mapped on a census. And you can click it and have a relationship with your tree. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? Check it out. And we had the emerald ash borer come to our city. We clicked the button. We know the location of every single emerald ash borer in our city. We had 20,000. And now we're strategically cutting it down so that this disease that's destroying a lot of our trees, I'm sure it hit here as well. But the tree census now it allows us to diversify our species. And it is up to date and live. You want to check it out. It's amazing. You could actually go on, click it if you mulch it. And it's a way of getting stewardship without all of our staff going out there to water or mulch a tree. It's so cool. Anyway. <laughs> So more technology of what we're doing, tree census and a tree street tree map. Thank you, Commissioner Silver. You. Uh, you know, we're a little bit different than New York City. No. <clears throat> I hadn't noticed. <laughs> yeah. So our population, we love our cars. We also love parks, but we just like to drive by the, the parks. So the question is, where is the innovation to help us use less car driving and um, access parks. I didn't drive around the city enough to get a feel for your public realm, but typically, if the walk is enjoyable, like I was in North Carolina, Raleigh, I'm sorry, I ain't walking anywhere. You put me in New York City. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is a true story. I have a car. I moved to New York in 2014. Since I moved to New York, I put on maybe 
2,000 miles in my car, 2014 till today, 2,000 miles. And one of included a trip to North Carolina and back. <laughs> there's so much to see. There's, it, it, the streets are alive. There's stuff to see and look. If it doesn't seem comfortable, if the sidewalk is broken, if the views aren't amazing, so it's hard for me to say, is there bike infrastructure that's there? Is there sidewalk infrastructure that's there? I don't know these things. Uh, but typically, if it's appealing and pleasant, people enjoy the walk. I don't know culturally why people like to get in their cars, because probably it's easy. In New York, it's not easy to drive. And it's easier to look for other modes. Now we have the e-scooters, biking, walking, strolling. So I don't know what it is, but it's easy to drive. I saw your streets. They are so wide. There's too much street and not enough of the other stuff. So that's culture. That's culture. And I don't know, I'd have to spend more time here in Cleveland to do a full diagnostic, to talk to folks to find out what's going on. Uh, but a lot of it has to do sometimes with the infrastructure if it's available. And then very often I think um, it, it may change, but I'd have to do more homework. Y'all got some good questions. I like Cleveland. <laughs> You talk about being an experience builder. Can you mm -hmm. explain some of the ways that your parks are designed to build experiences during the winter time, especially mm -hmm. some of your smaller neighborhood parks? Well, for one, what I like about parks in the wintertime, especially our wooded parks, is that with the foliage down, you get to see views you'd never see in the summertime. And so that's what I like about it. We still have wildlife in our parks. We actually have a whole campaign about how the wildlife's coming back. The raccoon, it's your neighbor. The deer, it's your neighbor. <laughs> Others don't feel that way, but it's our neighbor. <laughs> but people still come out to our parks. Uh, we have some activities. Uh, ice skating is there. Uh, we still have our restaurants are open. Uh, still open, our, all our concessions for biking are all available. Uh, so for us, it's just a culture that enjoys parks throughout the year. Now, people aren't picnicking there, uh, but we had winter jam. We actually brought in some snow and learned, kids learned how to uh, do a st snowboard down this little mountain. And so each community, we have all these partners come up with these events in our parks in the wintertime, but they're not closed. Uh, people just enjoy them. They love them. Uh, even the athletic groups, November Project, they're just all over the place. And so for us, it's not a heavy push. They just come. Now, clearly it's not like peak season, but people still come out to our parks because, again, New York is so dense, they need those public spaces just to relax and enjoy the outdoors. <laughs> So they're still populated, just that our comfort stations aren't open and our fountains aren't open, a water fountain. So, but people are still resilient and they come out. Except Prospect Park, we now have a, free, a fr freeze proof water fountain. They just put two in. So I'm a runner, I love it. So when you run around, there's two right now. And so we're trying to do more of those. So at least if you're athletic or biking, there's some water stations in a, in a park in the wintertime. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you. Let me grab this. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Mitchell Silver, Commissioner for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. This forum is part of our sustainable NEO series sponsored by Bank of America and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District with additional support from the Great Lakes Brewing Company. We're delighted to have representatives from all of our sponsors with us today. Thank you so much for your continued support of City Club programming. The community partners for today's forum include the Conservancy for the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, the Ohio Chapter of ASLA, 
the Trust for Public Land and the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your support for promoting today's forum. Lastly, we welcome guests at tables hosted by City Architecture, the Cleveland Foundation, the Cleveland Metro Parks, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, Land Studio and Rethink Advisors, and the Old Brooklyn Development Corporation. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Commissioner Silver. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.